Hello Bibliophiles, how are you doing today? I hope that you're having a fantastic first day of February and I hope that January has treated you well and you managed to keep at least for a month the New Year's resolutions on. One month is already a big success. I am currently at my sixth book for January and I'm extremely happy of the result. So, so far it's been quite good. Uh, the book I'm reading just now is 1979 by Val McDermott and I absolutely love it because the main character is a young journalist. So, um, in the 70s, so it's a completely different world, but oh boy, I'm enjoying it. And I've never read anything by Val McDermott, so I'm extremely happy that I finally got a run. So thank you very much to the organisers of Scotland Book Club, because they're doing a fantastic job with the selection. But now, let's focus on the present and to today's interview and guest. Um, this is probably the freshest episode I've ever done. Uh, I've only done the interview on Monday. But I'll be honest, I've enjoyed it so much that I really needed to let it out and fly. And I hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So today's guest is the wonderful John McClellan. I've been in touch with John for quite a while to organize this interview, but it was well worth the wait. And I am absolutely delighted to have him on today. Uh, full disclosure, the delay was all my fault. Very quickly, a couple of housekeeping notes. First of all, at some point during our interview, John mentioned how much he was grateful to the team at the Liverpool Bookshop for promoting his book. Unfortunately, due to a couple of tech issues, that bit had to be taken out. But um, a massive shout out to Catherine and the wonderful work that they do in Olapo. Uh, they are amazing and uh, we absolutely love them. So big shout out to them. And uh, secondly, there's been another couple of tech issues. I'm sorry, guys, I have a new laptop and I'm adjusting. Um, so the quality on my side is slightly lower than usual. So it's not too bad, but just to warn you. We spoke to John about how exciting and mad it is to publish your first novel and become an author and embracing that identity. Uh, we spoke about geology and his passion for geology and of course we spoke about The Fault Line. Uh, the book is about a group of young people in the late 70s who are brought together by chance in the wild landscapes of the Northwest Highlands and Westeros. It's related to the landscape but it's also the story of these young people coming together and discovering their own identity and their own sexuality, especially the main character. It's a very human story and it blends wonderfully into the wonderfully ragged landscape of Kinlochui, so uh, we definitely recommend the read. And what can I say? This interview just rocks. So please don't leave after this one. I will leave you to the interview with the wonderful John McClellan. Hello, John. Welcome to Northern Biblosphere. How are you doing? Uh, I'm all right. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm speaking for you in down in Bristol, as you know, and um, it's it's a milder day. It's nice and clear, though, nice and sunny. So uh, um, I'm all right, actually. I'm feeling quite a good place. It's lovely to be doing this with you. 
Fantastic. I'm so, so happy to. It's been, we've been in touch for actually a while trying to arrange so we finally managed it. I'm so, so happy that you're here. Um, so you are the author of The Fault Line, which uh, mm-hmm. is your first book. But um, before going into The Fault Line itself, I want to ask you a bit about yourself. So in, in the bio, there's so many different things that come up. So uh, you said that you've worked in logistics, film and television, BBC, um, <laughs> advisor to the NHS. So uh, and most importantly, student, like you studied geology and that's part of your life and that comes across a lot in the book. So um, can you tell me a bit about who are you and what's your story? <laughs> Yeah, um, sure. Thanks. Well, thanks very for asking. You don't often get a chance to uh, run through your autobiography in that way. But I mean, you've, you've encapsulated it really uh, briefly there, Freddie. You know, you start off in university and you've got the world ahead of you. You're not quite sure what direction you're going to go in, are you? Uh, for me, uh, I yeah, started off as a geologist and really loved uh, rocks. And uh, I, I, I wanted to be in geology, but it was very difficult back then to get a geological uh, job without studying a lot more. Um, and I hadn't got the money uh, or the, uh, the will to do that, really. Um, so I went into what they called industry sort of management, you know, but I hadn't a clue back then in the late 70s what, what that was about, but seemed to get on in it okay. Um, got into marketing, that got me into using film and video, that got me into the film and video business, that got me into the BBC. And then... Um, I was out of the BBC and became an independent management consultant. So that means you can be anything you want, right? Um, and I found my way into, uh, find, seemed to find a niche in working with big organisations, government departments and big corporate organisations in equality and diversity, um, those sort of areas in the 2000s. And that brought me into the NHS, uh, where I then uh, worked for the last eight years or so as an advisor. Um, to a number of hospitals uh, around those sort of areas, really. Um, and then as I started to stop working, I still find the retirement word a difficult one. Um, uh, but retiring, uh, I found myself doing uh, geology as a volunteer, uh, again, on the Jurassic Coast. So life is sometimes, Freddie, like a big ellipse, really. I started off loving geology. I went through all this career stuff in all sorts of directions, and then ended up doing uh, geology again, which is uh, is lovely. And now, as you kindly said, I've I've written a book, and that seems to be taking me surprisingly into uh, another another area that I never expected. That's amazing, and it's great that you're able to um, balance it with your first passions as well, and something you're so uh, yeah that you love so much. And I think it comes across in the book as well. But very quick note: you mentioned the Jurassic Coast. Right. Where can you just tell me very quickly where is that, and are there actually dinosaurs around? That's how I'm imagining it, like a <laughs> Jurassic Park, but somewhere in England. Is that right? <laughs> It is. Um, so it's, um, uh, well, it's, it's quite a good link, actually. Thanks for asking about it. So some of your listeners will probably know it or will have visited it. So the Jurassic Coast is on the, uh, the south coast of um, parts of Dorset and Devon, uh, East Devon and Dorset. So it's about 80 miles long um, coast and it's uh, on the cliffs there. They've got almost a continuous cliff line for 80 miles. Um, and it's very easy to walk along the beaches there and see fantastic uh, rocks. They're all in lovely layers, and they, their colours change from west to east. And um, 
the, the, the colors change because there's different rocks there, right? Um, and it's the exposure of those rocks, the ease of seeing them and the landscape they create that has made that area what is called the Jurassic Coast. And like the Northwest Highlands that we're going to talk about, it's a UNESCO designated, so that's a big United Nations organization, designates important uh, landscapes and places around the world as being um, unique or significant for the, some reason or other. And the Jurassic Coast is one of them. But you're right, it was called the Jurassic Coast because um, if they'd called it uh, something like the interesting rocks of South and East uh, Dorset and Devon, it wouldn't have been as catchy. Um, and Jurassic, as you say, just conjures up in everyone's minds now dinosaurs. And of course, dinosaurs have been found uh, on that coast, uh, fossil dinosaurs, uh, significant ones, over the last two or three centuries. And um, so they, they called it the Jurassic Coast and the name has stuck. And now people from all over the world come there to uh, to see it, which is brilliant, really. And That's my amazing. job was as a volunteer occasionally to take people out and point at the rocks and say, this is that one, this is that one, and this is how old they are, and they were formed in a desert or a tropical sea and all that sort of thing, and people uh, were hopefully interested. No, that sounds amazing. I feel like I really want to visit. So one of my uh, <laughs> early passions as a seven-year-old was to become a paleontologist. That never became yeah? true, okay. uh, but uh, it just sounds very, very fascinating. So whenever there's a reference to... Uh, fossils and dinosaurs I'm actually quite uh, oh that sounds good um, well it is it is easy to pick up fossils there um, you're not supposed to pick them out of the cliffs anymore but do you, on the beach there um, you know if you if you get your eye in and look around uh, there's quite a few beaches there where you stand a good chance of finding an ammonite so amazing. get yourself down there and have a look nice that's the next trip but talking about places and amazing places where you are making the link with the uh, unesco um heritage site so uh let's talk about the fault line now uh the book is based in the northwest highland is in kilohue uh i'm actually very terrible at pronouncing names sometimes so i do apologize to all the listeners <laughs> uh but uh yeah so western ross this absolutely stunning and amazing place can i ask you why did you decide to um, set your book there and um, yeah just uh, uh, and how the idea came about yeah well thank you um, a lot of uh, people do ask about that um, I had uh, the idea of a book in my head for some years Freddie um, before I actually got around to, to, to writing it um, I suppose I've been thinking for some time um, about writing about a young man coming to terms with life and love um, that's one of the themes of the book anyway. Um, there was nowhere else for me to set it. You know, when you set out to write your first book, um, uh, I now know for a fact, because uh, I've talked to, I've had the privilege of talking to a few lovely authors in uh, Scotland uh, over the last year, um, and pretty well everyone tells me that the first book you write has got a strong autobiographical basis to it, inevitably, because that's something you know well. So... For me, um, the Northwest Highlands were somewhere I fell in love with um, decades ago, <laughs> um, coming up here on geology field trips from university. So um, I was at university in Swansea. I don't know if you perhaps haven't been there, but it's in South Wales. Uh, a lot of your listeners will know. And um, so South Wales is a hell of a long way from Ullapool and Durness, but uh, 
back then, for some reason, we uh, were all taken up to the Northwest Highlands to do our training uh, as geologists um, and to find our feet and produce maps. And my degree uh, fieldwork project was uh, set around Kinloch U, as you uh, as you correctly pronounced it, um, and Kinloch U. So I went there in 1977 and. Uh, and spent a couple of months uh, out in the field, really. And that experience, for me personally, was um, completely life-forming. Uh, it was a very significant period for me and a very significant thing to do that stood with me ever since. Um, so when I started to write a novel uh, during lockdown, I thought that there's nowhere else it can be. Uh, it just has to, has to be there. And it was somewhere that I could evoke in my head really clearly, Freddie, and um, very visually, not just from all those years ago, but on many more recent visits. It's somewhere I love. You clearly feel passionate about it yourself. Um, so conjuring up the landscape uh, as a backdrop to the story was relatively easy uh, thing for, for me to do, although I had a, no idea really that writing it down, other people were going to experience it in the same way. But fortunately, the feedback suggests they do. <laughs> Yeah, no, I quite, I'd quite like to just touch on this uh, very personal relationship with the landscape as well, and uh, well, the geology of it, and uh, the uh, different aspects of it. Because the main character in the book is yeah, they're they're doing field work, mapping everything, and uh, it's something that maybe um, a lot of people that are not used to the geology, myself, I don't know what a geologist exactly does on on the yeah. on a day during field work, so. Um, it's something that I think is quite interesting reading through the book um, and uh, just the very different, I think, way and eye that you look at the landscape through um, in a way. So can I just tell you a bit more about this relationship, especially through a geologist perspective? Yeah, um, uh, really, uh, although I made light of it, it was a real important reason why uh, our university took students up to the Northwest Highlands and they weren't the only university doing that. In fact, on a, a good sunny day or even a wet day, you'll find uh, if you travel up that way to places like, but north of Ullapool towards Durness or, or indeed around Kinloch U and Gaelock and so on, you'll often find uh, geology um, work parties out, uh, you know, with yellow jackets on beside the road looking at uh, rocks. The, the, the Northwest Highlands has got the most um, uh, significant uh, geological landscape in uh, in the world, in a way, and that's not um, aggrandizing it, uh, really. It's um, back there in the late uh, 19th century, Victorian geologists figured out for the first time uh, the extent of the Earth's history and the fact that mountain ranges, for instance, had existed and been washed to the sea and risen up again countless times. Uh, and the evidence for that lay there in the Northwest Highlands. And to this day, you can um, look at geological textbooks all around the world. Uh, I've seen Japanese, American ones and European ones, and there'll be pictures of Glencool and uh, other places in the Northwest Highlands because of of its significance and the exposure of the rocks there, what it was revealed um, has lasted as, as uh, you know, the, it's, it's significant for the history of geology as a subject, as well as being uh, fantastic rocks in themselves. They are the oldest rocks in Europe and obviously therefore in Britain as well. 
Um, and they create a unique landscape. You've, you've been there yourself, haven't you? Yeah. So, you know, and people listening to this will perhaps can see in their mind's eye what the landscape is like up there. You've got these very abrupt mountains sticking straight up out of the, uh, the, the sort of flatter landscape in between. Very big, uh, abrupt uh, mountain landscape, um, quite unlike anywhere else in, uh, in Britain um, or Europe, probably. And uh, that's all a function of the geology. So, yes, uh, you kindly, in the book, um, we've got this group of young people. They've come together by chance. Some of them are geologists and some of them are working on the campsite cafe. And that is a, there's a factual basis for that, Freddie. Back then in 1977, there really was a campsite there. People can still stop on it. And, um, and there was a cafe on the campsite. It's outside the campsite door now, but outside the campsite gate. But it was, was it then, where you uh, stayed when, when you were there? Was a similar Yeah, it was. Setting. So I, I stayed there in a, a tiny little tent and, um, so you've got these, I've brought these characters together in the story who uh, are there. Some of them are to study the rocks and some of them are to work in the cafe. Mixture of men and women, all around about 20. And therefore, uh, as people around about 20 do, they take quite a lot of interest in each other, as well as in uh, the landscape and what's going on around them. Um, I suppose the title of the book's quite important, really. Um, as you know, um, the it's called The Fault Line. So the fault line is a geological term, and uh, it, it, it's a feature which uh, is a, a split in the rock, but it's it's where there has been a movement. So the, the rocks on one side of the fault aren't the same as on the other side. Um, but we use that language in everyday life, right? Uh, so you can hear often news commentators will talk about a fault line in government or um, a fault line in politics or um People can sometimes talk about it in the office. There's a bit of a fault line around here. It's really basically saying there's some fundamental differences between how one side thinks and the other side thinks. And this is from um, the, the geology where a fault line can bring very different rocks, one side and, and the other. But because it's a displacement of, of the landscape that's arisen by uh, geological forces. But sometimes things can look pretty much the same on either side of the fault and you're not aware of it being there geologically unless you look really hard. And that's what this type of fault in this story is about. I use it, as you would know, because you've read it, as a metaphor. So it's a, it just, it's a way of bringing in um, the fact that as things first appear, when you look at them, if you study them a bit more and uh, look at them more deeply, then something else can be revealed. And um, so I've used that as a, as a metaphor. But in the story and in real life, there are some dramatic faults uh, on the mountains above uh, Kinloch U. And uh, yeah, I mapped them as a student. And uh, when I came to write about them for the book, it was, it was just lovely. It was an immersive experience, Freddie, really. I uh, just found myself... Um, easily transported to that place and during lockdown you know when we were all struggling with uh, what to do with our, our daily lives uh, well first of all it spurred me into getting on with writing and couldn't prevaricate any longer than once uh, once we Boris Johnson had um, put us into uh, that situation I, I opened the laptop and just started yeah and um, yeah and it just kept on flowing really and the the landscape was just there in front of me the whole time uh, as a as a 
backdrop in my head. It was just easy to see. But I did check it against the map constantly as well, so that um, so that I knew that everything I was describing was uh, accurate. Because you you never know how readers are going to you know they might be very knowledgeable of the area themselves, and uh, I didn't want anyone writing to me and say. You know, when you describe that bit to the side of the river, well, it isn't really like that, um, but I know that it is. <laughs> That's good. And I think that everyone, especially locals, appreciate will appreciate a lot the detail and the fact that you you do your best to get things right and, um, um, yeah, not not maybe just uh, drawing only on memories, but also on something more factual. Um, I'm wondering, because this is your first book, how did you go on about the process of writing it? How, um, I know lockdown was a very quite particular time, if we say, of course, uh, but uh, yeah, how did you go on about writing it and developing the characters? Because yeah, one, so one thing that I think is really interesting is that we are very much uh, probably something that I would have expected from this book probably because it's so tied to um, the landscape and uh, the place. Usually it's a very, it is an introspective book, but this is also a lot about relationship within, between humans, which you don't really get that much in, in books that are so um, related to the landscape. So can you tell me a bit about yeah the process and about this particular feature? Oh, Freddie, the way you ask that question, and obviously, I, unlike the listeners, I can see you asking that is so lovely. Um, and you're not alone on picking up on that uh, that emotional uh, story that develops between um, the characters. Um, and I just uh, love the fact that words I've put on a page uh, can have an effect on people. Uh, is gobsmacking, actually, uh, to be honest. Uh, I suppose uh, when a, a year ago, when this book was just uh, really starting to get out there, I, I didn't know that anyone other than a few friends were going to read it. And I thought most people would sort of say, yeah, it's all right, John, well done. You know, I'm going to press wildflowers under it and see how it goes. But I've had comments from people who are complete strangers to me, and not just from Britain now, but other places in Europe as well, including your home country. Um, and that, completely knocks me out and the thing that most people comment on is the emotional relationship between the characters and how that story uh evolves and how it's told um so when i started when i was writing it to answer your question um i didn't know that the way i was writing it was going to have that effect on people so it's been brilliant that it has and um I love the fact that uh, people can tune into uh, into the feelings that I tried to write uh, into the story. Um, yeah, when you do it, though, um, I think the reason I'd never got around to it, it's really hard. Um, so the day after Boris Johnson had, had locked us all up, as I say, I flipped open the laptop and it felt to me, uh, Freddie, like giving up smoking, but the opposite way round. So I don't know if you've ever been a smoker, but... Giving up smoking is like really hard to do. Um, and the only way you can give up in the end, I gave up 30 years ago. Um, but I can only relate to chocolate. I think that's the thing that I couldn't <laughs> give up on but, anything, but that's that's my smoke probably. <laughs> you can imagine how hard it would be to give up chocolate maybe. Um, the thing is, uh, what, 
to, to stop smoking, people have asked me sometimes, you know, like working in the NHS and stuff, how did you how did you stop smoking, John? It's like, in the end, you've just got to want to stop. You have to just say to yourself, I'm going to stop, and that's it. Uh, and until you do, you don't, if you see what I mean. You just have the sheer willpower. And writing just felt like that. So I flipped open the, the laptop that morning, and I had to start writing. It's just write something, John. Just keep write. Keep writing. Don't stop. Just keep. So I was banging some stuff out. You know, the first day I did a thousand words or so, and uh, I just thought perhaps it was a pile of rubbish. You know, but went back to it the next day. In a couple of weeks, I'd I found I was writing about a thousand words a day, and um, once the story got going, I couldn't stop. I'd be getting up in the morning. Uh, and the thought for what to do that day, you know, to, to get to the laptop and do writing was all I wanted to do, really. I mean, I was doing some other things. I was volunteering in the NHS at the time, and um, that was lovely too. But the desire to get writing, you know, I'd written a lot of things in my management career, Freddie, but I had no idea um, about writing fiction and dialogue, really. And so I had to try those things out. And I had some friends and neighbours who had agreed to be uh, readers of drafts. So when I finished the first draft of the novel and uh, put it out to half a dozen people, really, to tell me whether this is just rubbish or whether uh, it's worth continuing, you know, and um, and hopefully spot some spelling mistakes. Um, but I was also really concerned about the uh, dialogue that people would think it's nonsense, you know, or just unrealistic. Um, and people gave me feedback was just the complete opposite of that. You know, I had a, a cousin um, write to me who's uh, quite a bit older than me, had been an English uh, teacher herself, um, and just said, oh, John, the, the dialogue, for instance, you, you know there's a bit, Freddie, where two of the female characters uh, have deep conversations with each, or conversations with each other in a caravan, and I've fretted about those a lot. Because, you know, who am I as a new writer to write and give voice to young women? Uh, is that going to be authentic? Have I got the right to, to do that? I really uh, bothered me. Um, but the feedback I had was, that well, this, this cousin said, oh, John, you just took me straight back to conversations I had with a girlfriend at, at college, you know, that we spoke to each other exactly like that. And I couldn't believe that as a bit of feedback. Um, but that gave me a lot of confidence to, to plough on, really. But that was the hardest bit was, uh, you know, writing dialogue took uh, an awful lot of thinking about. I can imagine. And again, as you say, making it authentic must be very difficult as well. I think it does sound very authentic and very, very natural. It flows very naturally. Um, Thank you for saying and, that. And uh, I think that is everyone from uh, every woman listening to the podcast will be uh, delighted that you actually took the time to think, OK, am I getting this right? Because I think that not all the authors do. Um You'll know from the, the story that uh, um, it's obviously clear, like, like the male central character in the, in the story, um, I'm fond of women in the sense that I always had a lifelong uh, respect uh, for women. So it really did bother me that uh, to make sure that I got it right. Because 
you'll know if you've read the story that being young people, things happen to them. And I didn't want there to, to get to something where people would say to me, oh, John, you know, that bit where they um, get together on the mountain or whatever, that, oh, that really troubled me. It was just made me feel uncomfortable or something. But I've had just um, quite different reactions from people uh, in a positive way. And it's just been absolutely lovely. Yes. I would have been. Uh, I would have given up completely if um, uh, if the initial readers, who were mostly women, um, had sort of said, mm, "This just doesn't quite feel right, John." I would have. I would have stopped. But mm -hmm. fortunately, um, they said something quite different. Yeah, and I found that it's very interesting how you. Well, the the main character has, of course, uh, this is uh, growing up tale uh, and uh, yeah. is a moment of personal uh, building and very personal revelations um, in terms of yeah his own personality his sexuality of course um, and I think that you've been uh, talking about this with great um, gentleness in a way it's not something that feels too um, out of the blue or anything I think that every and how everyone reacts to his own um, the revelations that he has on himself as well. Everyone is extremely supportive, and this is about an utopia in some cases. It's a wonderful. I think it, there's very positive characters and very wonderfully positive relationship between each other. There's uh, um, everyone is um, just as caring, which is something that I think that we really need now. Um, just mm. the care and uh, trying to listen to other people. And I think that really, really wonderfully come through in the book in terms of, yeah, the relationships within the characters. Um, I'm wondering what effect it has had on you writing it, because you were talking about the effect that it has had on others and how it's uh, surprised you. What effect has, uh, has uh, the book had on you? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, at times, uh, writing it, Freddie, felt like, uh, well, not didn't feel like it was uh, a psychotherapeutic journey uh, in itself. Um, it wasn't how I expected it to be at all. When I started writing it, I thought it was going to be, uh, well, at one point, it was going to be much more uh, science fiction-y. You know, there's, there's a bit where they discover... Um, some metal objects on the on the mountain. You're not quite sure what what they are. Um, several years ago, I'd imagined how that story might go in more of a science fiction sort of way. But mercifully, I dropped that idea. Um, and there's nothing, as you know, there's nothing science fiction in it at all. In fact, there's nothing irrational in it, um, which is really important to me. Um, as I was writing it, that became. Uh, very important yeah it did uh, so the process of writing and i'm not alone in this i know is um becomes a journey in itself for the author um and i still feel it a bit weird to call myself an author but people have written to me as the author i've been invited to a uh a festival next september as an author so i'm trying to get used to the being called that um but you know um in writing this so uh, freddie i'd Shortly, I'd recently entered into retirement, really, and um, that's quite a difficult thing to go to. You know, you're a long way off yourself. But um, I can tell you, when you've done a lifetime of work, to actually stop, to take that significant feature of your life away, the thing that's preoccupied you um, for so decades, 
uh, and it comes to an end. You know, it raises questions about purposefulness of life. You know, who am I? Where am I going? Um, and it also raises questions about the past. Um, you know, did I did I do that right? Whether whether these junction points in life, you know, where you had choices, and you know, the did you did you turn left or did you turn right? Um, and how significant was that? Were these moments con completely life shaping? Um, and this story that I've written uh, is is about life-shaping moments for some of the characters for sure and um and yeah in my own life have had those life-shaping moments about the same areas of life as characters um so yeah writing of it i suppose some of the authenticity that people are kind enough to talk about like you um comes through because what i'm describing there are emotions and events that i've experienced myself so and at times it was quite hard to 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 go through those because you were bringing to the surface. Um, I was bringing to the surface things which uh, it's not that I'd forgotten about them, but writing them the, the process of writing for me anyway um, gave these tremendous memory cascades. Things would come out of my head. Sometimes it was um, you know like uh, I'm trying to describe something people might recognise listening. You know that. Um, you've got a cupboard full of rubbish and stuff that you've put in there over the years, and you know there's a load of stuff in there, and there's so much in that cupboard that if you open the door, it starts to uh, fall <laughs> out. Isn't it? Yeah, and um, so accessing my memory at times was like that. I'd do this deep dive into a moment from like four decades ago, and I, I could feel myself opening the door, but it was too late. To, to, to shut it again and suddenly all this stuff poured over me and it was very it was very emotional at times uh, as as a writer I had to take myself outside and uh, just sort of <laughs> calm down um, to get back into uh, writing zone um, but I think you know some of that comes over at least that's what people tell me and that's lovely if it does so yes it has been a journey for me as well my uh, question. My next question is about your inspiration. So, is it the first novel? But do you have any writers that you feel you particularly like that have inspired your writing? It's an interesting question to answer, Freddie, because I feel like this uh, complete novice. Really, um, I might be the age I am. Um, I'm perhaps not the first person to come to writing at this stage in life. Well, I know I'm not, but um, uh, you know, I would never compare myself to other people um especially not a couple of the people i'm going to mention uh, i mean my favorite author uh my favorite book anyway um is the name of the rose by umberto echo right so that's one of your uh country's uh great uh, authors <laughs> <laughs> and um but the fault line is not the same as um I can't even, uh, it feels embarrassing to even talk about it in, in the same breath, but that is the book that I love most. And I suppose if there's a hint of uh, the name of the rose related to the fault line, I suppose it's that um, things aren't what they seem. So if you know the story, there's quite a, a lot revealed in um, in uh, the name of the rose, which uh, isn't clear at the start. And I suppose I've got an element of that in here, but he wasn't in my head at all. Uh, when I was writing the fault line, um, 
Another author who was in my mind um, was uh, was George Orwell as another great author. Again, I can't, uh, I'm not even putting my name alongside him, but only in the sense that um, there were moments where I wanted to do what he did. He wrote his uh, 1984 in particular, was written on the Isle of Jura, you know, in the Western Isles. Uh, and, uh, and he'd, described sometimes writing there with a packet of fags and a bottle of whiskey on the table. And there were moments where I definitely wanted to copy that style of writing. But having given up smoking, as we've discussed, I didn't. Um, but I suppose in terms of... Was the um, whiskey there at any point? <laughs> sometimes at the end of the day, yes. As a reward, you know. Um, uh, I suppose that Anne Cleves, you know, so she's written um, the Shetland series and... Um, and uh, also in in the northeast of England, Vera series. Now those books are about their crime, and but uh, I suppose it's um, just that uh, I was trying not to. Well, I didn't clearly uh, write a, a crime novel, but there's, there's plenty of authors in Scotland who do do that uh, to really good effect. Who also bring in the landscape in the way I do, but they set. Um, different sort of events to to the landscape than I, I did, I suppose. Um, and, yeah, so Anne Cleves, right, well, the, one of the key things there, Freddie, is uh, her Shetland series, which many of your listeners will, will know, um, I'm sure, uh, set in the Shetland Isles. Uh, so it's a crime story. There's a lead detective. But that lead detective, um, Perez, does a lot of his, um, and the way she writes it is that particularly, it's less so on the television, obviously television is much more visual, but in the writing of that series, she puts a lot of the dialogue from Perez, the central character, in his head. So he's often thinking things, and she describes on the page what her lead character is thinking, the process that's going through his head, the thoughts that are in his head. And uh, that is something I definitely tried to emulate here and um so when people said to me um peter uh he's the central people listening to this who haven't read the fault line peter is the central um male character and um peter does a lot of thinking in his head and i described that on the page so when when some readers actually fed back to me that they liked that that was really uh wonderful to hear um, and if Anne Cleves is listening to this, I'd like to thank her for putting that idea in my head in the first place, because I think she does it really effectively on the Shetland series. And if I've copied it half as well, then I'll be uh, pleased. Amazing. And uh, I was wondering um, about, uh, well, part of the sales of your book will be donated to Southmead Hospital Charity and uh, the the copies sold in Ullapool, uh, in the Ullapool bookshop will go to the Northwest Highlands Viewer Park. So can I just ask you, why did you decide to uh, support these two well, charities, these two associations? Yeah. No, that's, that's a nice thing. Well, you, you asked earlier on about the writing process. I didn't uh, say then, but um, so during lockdown, uh, I've, I was already a volunteer at the local hospital. It's a very, very big hospital. It's got about 12,000 staff. It's huge. Um, so, and it's a big cavernous space. It's, uh, you know, a quarter of a mile long, really. And um, 
I, I was in there doing a role taking medicines from the hospital pharmacy around the wards to cut down staff movements because we were all then trying to avoid cross-infection from one person to another or whatever. Um, it all seems like ancient history now, doesn't it, Freddie? But it's not that long ago, really. Um, so anyway, I was doing this role, but because of this vast cavernous hospital was empty of the people who would normally be there, the people attending x-rays and all the outpatient clinics and things weren't allowed in. So it was empty. And so I had all these moments of empty space, really, to put the characters together in my head. And I literally walked around the place um, thinking of the conversations and how they relate to each other, working that out while I, I was in that space. And as a tribute to the hospital, um, I decided to make a, a donation from every copy sold just to, to go to the hospital charity. And in the case of the Geopark in the Northwest Highlands, um, uh, you know, this story would never have happened. I wouldn't be writing this if I hadn't come to study rocks in the Northwest Highlands. And the Geopark now is there uh, as a UNESCO designation, like the Jurassic Coast, um, because of the, the beauty and the significance of the landscape and the rocks. And, um, yeah, out of, out of um, respect for that geopark and the people who work in it and volunteer for it, I uh, wanted to make um, some small donation to them as well. I think that's really brilliant and uh, it's just so important to support both like, the work of voluntary association and especially after COVID and such a awful period so um that's i think a very good thing to do through your book and uh, i have uh, one last question here so what's next for you are you are you gonna uh, keep on writing are you working on any projects yeah um freddie uh really nice question to ask it's taken some getting to, to grips with this uh obviously i've initially self-published but um trying to uh find a, a publisher uh, and uh, get you know, you suddenly find yourself pitched into a professional world that you knew very little about. But anyway, I'm there now. And yeah, I do want to make more of it. Apart from anything else, I love the process of writing. I uh, I, I came in, in the end to, uh, to adore doing it. And, and now people have actually, um, hundreds and um, hundreds of people have, have read it um, or bought it anyway. Uh, well, I know that dozens of people have read it because they've written to me, and um, I, I, I love that—the uh, idea that I, I can somehow create something that makes people feel good. You know, a number of people have written to me and said, "When I get to the end of the book, John, I feel full of hope. I could never have predicted people would use that language, Freddie. I, where did that come from?" I thought, "Well, obviously, I know how it relates to the story, but I couldn't—I couldn't imagine that people would." have that sort of strength of feeling from something that I've written. But anyway, they have. And so book two um, is underway. I'm 20,000 words into it. I hope that uh, by the late spring or summer of this year, I will um, have that out. Um, at least I want to get the first draft done by the end of spring. Um, 20,000 words is... Sounds quite a lot to some people, but a completed novel or the complete fault line is 104,000. So there's quite a way to go. Um, but yeah, the people who've read the fault line will know it's in two historical parts. So it's in 1977 and then we jump forward um, in, in time uh, to see what happened to the characters. Um, 
So the second novel is the bit in the middle. So it's sort of like a, a mid-call. It's neither before uh, the fault line uh, or necessarily after it, but it's what happened to the characters. They they refer back to things that happened in the 80s. So I'm going to, the book, the second book will start off um, in the mountains in the mid 80s, a time precious to a lot of people. Thank you for asking. Amazing. No, I'm so looking forward to uh, hear more and to know when uh, exactly it's going to be publishing. So keep us posted. And it's been wonderful to have you on Northern Bibliosphere. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, we'll keep an eye on your on your future works. Oh, Freddie, the, it's been lovely for me to talk with you. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for inviting me on um that was such a lovely interview. I do really recommend reading The Fault Line and the proceeds of the sales, as you've listened, will help support two wonderful causes. So go ahead, uh, that's one more reason to buy it and it's also a wonderful story. But before we go, we have a book review waiting for us. Hello, this is Better Late Than Never for North Bibliopod. I'll try and keep it short and sweet. Um, I'm finally getting round to speaking in, writing in to you after finishing my second year of doing uh, voluntary reviews of the Highland Book Prize. And just really wanted to have a nice link where I got to review a book for this year called Daughters of the North, Jean Gordon and Mary Queen of Scots by Jennifer Morag Henderson. It was a bit of a long read, but extremely detailed and very interesting, big link to Highland culture for sure. And just generally having history from a woman's point of view, which is hopefully more on the up, <laughs> um, but really interesting to have the view from Jean Gordon through very interesting historic times. So learned a lot in that book. And it was quite nice because it really linked back in, I thought, to a, a book that I am going to always have on my bookshelf and always refer back to it, Scotland, Her Story, The Nation's History by a Woman Who Lived Under It. That's curated with uh, Rosemary Goring. Hopefully I've got that right. So highly recommend that. A latter book to have on a bookshelf for sure because it just opens up your eyes to how women in Scotland have lived and in particular some really interesting Highland authors. Well these are two cracking book recommendations from Kat. I've not read Daughters of the North but I can vouch for Scotland Her Story is an amazing amazing book um, and I know that Daughters of the North has been having massive um, success around here so this is something that is definitely on my to be read list uh, but but that's us for today thank you so much for tuning in uh, it's so exciting to be back and i really hope to have feedback from you uh, do get in touch you can do so on our social media channels or at northbibliopod.com uh, or you can leave us a review as uh, cat just did on speakpipe all the links are in the show notes uh, but do get in touch if there's anything that you'd like us to cover if you want to discuss any book if there's anything you liked particularly or 
if you just want to talk anything about books or if you just want to say hi um, but please if you like this free show share it with a friend it absolutely helps us having the numbers and creating this we bibliophile community uh, and uh, I really hope that you have a fantastic February ahead we'll meet next week with more book news interviews we shall see have a wonderful wonderful week <laughs>